Hello, friends, and welcome. It's lovely to be here. I'm Pam Pastor, your host for the Grace and Peace of God Love Wins podcast. You know, as believers, we're called to be faithful under pressure. One of God's promises to us is that He will multiply grace and peace back to us as believers when we diligently strive after a deeper knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus, and then we place it into action. We learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God in Him are yes and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. And the Apostle Paul teaches us much about promises and wisdom. Specifically, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, God alone made it possible for me to be in Christ Jesus. For my benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. He is the one who made me acceptable to God. He made me pure and holy and gave himself to purchase my freedom. Well, friends, today's episode is titled Beacon of Light, and hang in here with me and you'll see why a little bit later on. So why is it God is called the Alpha and the Omega? Well, we know He alone is the first and the last. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, John says, And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. By using the expression Alpha and Omega, we're indicating God's sovereignty over all things, not just some things. God is the beginner of the beginning, standing at the beginning of creation, and He ends the end as we have known it later sometime in the future. We've learned in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, friends, as believers, we know Christ and we have an overcoming spirit and an actual victory despite the snares, meaning traps or temptations and troubles that we find ourselves in in this world. The world can do nothing to reclaim believers. God has defeated the evil world system and taken loving ownership of his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A result of being a new creation is that the world's standard of judgment according to the flesh no longer applies. The key phrase is, In Christ is one of Paul's favorites. In Christ, the old struggles have gone. In us, the struggles rage on, though. Paul was not inferring that at the moment of our spiritual rebirth, a person's lust, temptations, and carnal thoughts disappear. But with the Spirit's help, the Christian's practice will align more with his position daily until the sun returns, making us wholly complete. 
Now, John talks about the shepherd knowing his sheep. And in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and my and my Father Father are one. God has given us his word, not out of a duty or a debt or obligation that we must repay, but rather as an assurance of our relationship with him and as a guide for our way back home. Now, the beauty of eternal life is that believers receive it the moment that we believe in Christ as our Savior. Jesus and the Father are one, meaning that they are unified and they enjoy perfect equality. While Jesus and the Father are distinct persons, they share the same essence and attributes. With this said today, we're forging ahead with our unsung biblical heroes looking at women from the New Testament. Now, our first stop takes us to the prophetess Anna of the tribe of Asher. Her story is told in Luke chapter 2. Anna was the daughter of Phanuel. She was quite elderly. Her husband died and she had been married for a total of just seven years. She served God in the temple with fasting and prayers day and night. Anna was an amazing prayer warrior who was truly committed to God. She, like Simeon, would testify to Jesus's identity that he indeed was the promised Savior. Forward now, we go to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, where Luke records for us, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of who had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Luke zeroed in on Mary's service with Jesus after her healing. We don't know how Jesus went about her healing. Mary never forgot what Jesus did for her and was both thankful and grateful, and she said so. She was one of the women who financially supported Jesus's ministry. When we look at Mary's life, it's a testimony to Jesus's incredible restorative ability upon a person's life, as well as her tremendous response to his free gift of healing. God's people are called to be generous toward ministry efforts, and yet God is the great multiplier who always gives us more back than we will ever be able to give. All three women, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, possessed great wealth. Jesus healed all three in some form or fashion. There are many Marys in the Bible, but Mary Magdalene isn't to be confused with the Mary who anointed Jesus's head with oil, or Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. This Mary, as stated earlier, had seven demons cast out of her. She came from a city on the Sea of Galilee called 
Magdala. This is how her surname became Magdalene. So stay with me here. You may be thinking, oh yeah, I've heard of this, Mary. She has loose morals and was best known as a woman of ill repute. Well, it's my job to correct misinformation, so here goes it. It's completely understandable that you may have been thinking this. In essence, it's what some of us were taught. However, it's wrong. You see, the city Magdala was known for prostitution, and the placement in Luke's gospel of this story is immediately after a story about a probable prostitute, known as a sinner who is forgiven and restored by Jesus. She was known as an immoral woman forward to Mary, who's often thought of as a woman of ill repute, yet no compelling reason or evidence exists. It's probable the story was simply passed down throughout time inaccurately, and more often than not has remained. Although the Bible portrays her post-healing as a genuine, authentic disciple who's devoted to Jesus's cause, while she's not listed as one of the inner circle of three or the larger circle of 12, she most likely fit into the wider circle of 72 disciples. She remained by Jesus's side throughout his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and burial. When Jesus's followers abandoned him at the cross, it was she John and Jesus's mother, Mary, who remained. Ironically, it was Mary Magdalene who was first witnessed the empty to the empty tomb. She was the first to worship the risen Christ. I've heard it said that she was the apostle to the disciples. While I'm unable to substantiate that claim, I can say when lists of women are erected, she always makes the top. I hope this has added clarity for you in just who Mary Magdalene is and what her function and friendship meant for Jesus. We're now going to explore a woman found in the book of Acts. Her name is Tabitha, which when translated means Dorcas. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9 verses 36 through 43. Her service and charity in the early church are well known. Here again, Luke records this account by saying, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid Later in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon and Tanner. Peter, like most of us, if we're doing life right, we grow and evolve, especially as our relationship with Christ deepens. Peter was ministering and going through all parts of the country when he had an opportunity to heal a man named 
Anias in the city of Lydda, but this isn't an episode about men. It's about the unsung heroes of faith, the many women who helped to shape and transform our world. What we do know, though, is that without Peter having a heart for others, he would have not been in the nearby Lydda and readily available to come to Joppa. One can make a case that Peter's life was marked by ministry, humility, and availability. Exactly who is the woman that Luke is referring? We know she has been identified as a disciple. Again, most likely one of the larger rings of the 72. It's important to note scripture says at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Let's start with translated name Dorcas. It is that of a Jewish believer with a Greek name. Her skill set included handiwork. Arguably, she would have been the equivalent of an early seamstress who fashioned tunics or coats and other garments for the disciples. She also performed other good works and charitable deeds. In the wealthy city of Ephesus, the Gentile women were in competition with each other. They wore elaborate hairstyles and had extravagant jewelry, as well as expensive clothing. All of this was encouraged by the false teachers of the day. We learn in 1 Timothy that Paul instructs the ladies of the day to be modest in their adorning of their appearance. He said godliness and good works are the proper attire for worship and for life. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. You see, beauty in the eyes of God is not beauty that society sees merely outward. God considers a gentle and quiet spirit the cultivation of a woman's inner character is her finest adornment. Biblical beauty goes far beyond skin deep. This account reflects how Peter went to God in prayer and in obedience he used his apostolic gifting and he was a conduit for bringing Tabitha back to life. Paul's influence was far-reaching, and he touched the lives of many, including a woman named Lydia. Paul was sensitive to the Spirit of God and was able to discern God's will with precision and then act upon the instruction given. God had instructed Paul to leave Asia Minor and go into Europe. Paul set up and established a new ministry in the city of Philippi. This was a Roman colony that came about under Alexander the Great's father. Philippi was a favored city of Rome. Here the citizens were exempt from paying Roman taxes. Lydia was a devout woman who had more light to give the world because she utilized what she had been given for God's kingdom, in my opinion, she was given more. Such is the case as Cornelius, who was a religious Gentile man. However, Lydia was a Gentile woman who most likely enjoyed the moral and ethical standards of Judaism, but became a proselyte or was converted to Christianity as a God-fearing woman. She was a successful businesswoman who was a seller of dyed cloth, specifically purple, which was the color of royalty and nobility. Her name was large enough, her home, excuse me, was large enough 
to host Paul and his team. It was at her house the brethren were seen and encouraged. Additionally, Paul baptized her entire household. Again, forging ahead, Paul departed from Lydia's home and stopped in other cities, one such being in Athens, Greece, before making his way to Corinth. Athens was famous for well-known philosophers who had taught there such as Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Epicurus, and Zeno. The city bustled with its extensive history of art, literature, philosophy, and politics. By the time Paul arrived on the scene, Athens had been replaced by Corinth as the leading commercial city in Greece. However, with that said, Athens was still the premier cultural and intellectual center of the Western world. Athens was known as a religious city only not to the one true God. They were said to total 10,000 people, and yet there were 30,000 statues of gods in the city. It was a heartbreaking sight to see God's people bowing down before idols. Can you imagine being Paul and encountering the philosophers at Athens? Scripture records in Acts chapter 17 verse 18 as saying, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. You see, Paul wasn't waiting around for people to come to him. He was in the synagogue on Sundays and out in the marketplace the rest of the week. The Greek poets even knew and recognized that it was God who created humans, not the other way around. As far as we know, Paul didn't return to Athens, nor did his debates with these intellectuals lead to a church being planted there. I led us up to our next stop by highlighting Athens and what was occurring to help in painting the picture for Paul's next stop, which was in the city of Corinth. By all reports, Corinth was one of the most wicked cities in Greece. It was morally evil. If someone was called a Corinthian, they may as well have been called a prostitute or another extreme immoral trait. God is so good and always sees the beginning from the end, though. Paul would arrive into Corinth alone, and right away he made two new friends who had come to Corinth recently from Italy. Like Paul, they too were believers in Christ and were tent makers. The friends were Aquila and Priscilla. Now, the New Testament mentions Aquila and Priscilla six times, but never separate from each other, and Priscilla is mentioned first four of the six times. We learn in Romans that the early Corinthian church met in Aquila and Priscilla's house and not in a brick-and-mortar-fashioned building. Like we said earlier, it was recorded that Lydia was Paul's first recorded convert in Philippi. Her home would become the base of operations for Paul. Again, our episode is primarily focused upon New Testament women today. Priscilla, who we said was a Jewish Christian disciple who traveled with her husband and Paul for furtherance of the gospel. 
And Paul would cite them in his letters in acknowledgement of their service. About nine miles away from the city of Corinth was a church in Centuria. It was here that we meet a woman named Phoebe. She was a deacon, or perhaps we can say deaconess. In Paul's letters, it was normal to see him call Christians as adopted sons and daughters of God the Father, or brothers and sisters in Christ. So keeping true to this practice, it was fitting that Paul called Phoebe our sister. As we've been learning, she too was among the faithful women of influence recorded in the scripture. Women like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and others used their resources to support him and his ministry. Instinctively, upon Jesus starting his ministry, he had women supporters who were responsive to his teachings. These same women sympathized with him in his distress and darkest hours. It was women who were the last ones to leave the cross, the first ones at the tomb of Jesus' resurrection day, and they were the first ones to proclaim the glorious news of his victory over death and over the grave. Paul credits Phoebe for helping others and himself. He was saying she was a patron or a champion on behalf of others. In the Greek world, a patron took others under their wing and represented them before the civil authorities. This is suggestive that Phoebe was a woman of means and had adopted many people serving as a patroness in their behalf. Paul instructed the Roman church to assist her in the spread of the gospel. Now, Paul also says to greet Andronicus and a woman whom he calls my countrymen, Junia, uh, whom he calls my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now, countrymen also can mean kinsmen, and some scholars do believe that these were relatives of Paul's. Nonetheless, the fact that Junia is mentioned as a follower and apostle of Christ by Paul and a fellow prisoner means she was a contributor to the spread of the gospel. Our next two women mentioned are significant, and we're going to end with these two ladies. They passed their faith down through the generations. Both examples were models for all Christian homes. They provided Paul's protege, Timothy, a heritage and a faith. Of course, I'm referring to Lois and her daughter, Timothy's mother, Eunice. Both of these parental figures were a staple and a gifting to young Timothy. I read that a good test to measure our lives asks us to envision standing upon the threshold of eternity and looking back over our lives. Would we be able to see that our faith is living on in others, especially our family members? Think about that. And friends, if you have not been spiritually reborn, God made it clear to enter into the kingdom of heaven, a person must confess belief in his son, Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. When we place our trust in Jesus, a divine exchange takes place. Jesus takes our sin, making us right with God. Our sin was then placed onto Jesus at his crucifixion. His righteousness is given to us upon our conversion. While it's true we can never repay this extraordinary and extravagant gift of kindness back, 
back to Jesus, what we can do is show Him gratitude by growing in our relationship with Him. We can make efforts to obey Him, deepening this relationship daily. Today, friends, if this is you, take action now. Step out boldly in faith and conviction toward the kingdom of God by openly confessing after me. Heavenly Father, I'm coming before you repenting of known and unknown sin in my life, meaning I'm changing my ways of thinking, acting, and showing up for life. Jesus, you're welcome to take up permanent residence as my king upon the throne of my heart. I confess your shed blood washed away my past, present, and future sin upon that cross at Calvary. Amen. Congratulations, friends. If you just prayed that prayer of salvation, you were saved and born again spiritually. Your next step is to read God's word daily so he can guide, direct, and reveal himself to you through the person of his word and the Holy Spirit. Now consider growing in a good Bible-based church, surrounding yourself with other like-minded believers who will assist you in edifying and building up your newfound faith in Christ. Again, congratulations, and God bless you on making the wisest and most important decision of your lifetime. And friends, the Grace and Peace of God Love Wins podcast is available daily. A special Children's Jesus Talk University podcast airs on Wednesdays. And our episodes do discuss and share Jesus' unlimited power in our present day lives. We look at many topics such as forgiveness, how to be joyful, what love in action looks like, as well as many of the teachings of Jesus' ministry. So this is an open invitation for you and your friends to come alongside me as we embark on an adventure of exploration of all things pertaining to Jesus. And if you like this episode, make sure to like and subscribe so you'll get the latest releases as they become available. And friends, much of today's podcast was referenced from my book, The Grace and Peace of God Love Wins. If you found content to be inspiring, compelling, or perhaps wish to do a rigorous deep dive Bible study on your own, you can pick up a copy from my website at pampastorcopywriting.com or at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Dorrance.com. And importantly, if you're unable to afford a copy, write to me. I'll find a way to get a free copy into your hands. You won't be disappointed. It's full of God's word and it's waiting for you to read it. Until next time, remember you have been marked and sealed with the cross of Jesus Christ forever. And a final word from Paul given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God bless you.